What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Arnie's. We are three guys that love a good surprise with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and we're talking about Nicolas Cage today, so I'm happy. I'm Keith Baker, and I need to save me breath to cool me porridge. And I'm Austin Terry, and Kevin Smith should not be writing any superhero movies. All of his ideas are terrible. On that, we might be able to agree. We'll see. On today's show, we've each picked some movies that have surprised us in the past, and we're going to chat about them. Pretty simple idea, but should be a good time. Before we get to that, though, of course, Austin, are there any recent episodes we've put out that our audience should be checking out? I think there are. I think there are. I hope everybody out there listening is an Andrew Garfield fan, because we did just do two straight weeks of Andrew Garfield on this podcast. We checked out Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, and then we also took a listen to his new musical, Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, I think we had fun with both of those episodes. We discovered that the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man may be a bit overlooked. And then the following week, we discovered, hey, Andrew Garfield can sing. So go check those out. For sure. For sure. Andrew Garfield is on our mind, of course. The Spider-Man movies pleasantly surprised us, gotta say. Didn't expect it going in. And Tick, Tick, Boom, could it be one of the best movies of the year? I know Keith doesn't think so, but who knows? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Definitely had some good moments, but best movie of the year. I don't know. Who's to say? Who's to say, Keith? Uh, that's the question. <laughs> but um, with that, let's get into our main topic of today's show. We've talked about overrated and underrated movies in the past, and today we wanted to try and talk about some that surprised us or, I guess, provided us with something that we weren't expecting going in. And that can mean a lot of different things for different people. So, Austin and Keith, let me know what went into picking the movies that you did. Was there any big thoughts? Was there anything that you were like, I have to include that one for X reason or Y? What was your criteria, if you want to put it that way? Yeah, I think for me... Um, I didn't do this on purpose, but I did just realize that the connective thread between both of my movies is going into these films, I just thought it was two big actors looking to collect a paycheck. I didn't expect anything from the two movies that I, uh, that I submitted here today. I thought they were going to bomb. And as soon as you get into them, it's like, wow, we got some good movies here. I'm in for a good time. For me, um, it was more just random. It was just movies I just happened to see, whether it was on Netflix or Peacock or Hulu, one of the streaming services, and I just came across them. And yeah, I guess it was just more random picks and, and then just put them on and started watching. I was like, oh, this is really good. So that's how it came across mine. Yeah. And for me, I picked two movies that I just would not have ever watched otherwise. If I had not heard about these movies being like, oh, wow, those were surprisingly good. Or, hey, you probably haven't heard about this movie, but you definitely should check it out. If they didn't get that kind of praise, then I just never would have watched these. And I'm glad I did. So I wanted to pay it forward and recommend it to all the listeners out there. All right. So with that, everybody out there listening, start thinking about some movies that may have surprised you in the past, because now it is time for us to get into ours. We each brought two. So let's run down these six and have some fun. So the first one I have brought to the table is The Clove Hitch Killer. This one was directed by Duncan Skiles, and it stars Dylan McDermott, Charlie Plummer, and Madison Beatty. This movie came out just a few years ago, so it's a pretty recent pick. And I think I first saw it on Amazon Prime, I want to say. And it's, I guess without spoiling it too much, at least off the bat, it's a serial killer movie. Maybe you guessed that from the title. And it just kind of blew me away. Like I kind of said at the top, I wouldn't have watched this had I not been recommended it. And I went in kind of expecting all the classic trappings that you would think from seeing a movie like this. Okay, so the whole movie is going to be about 
oh, I guess there's a serial killer, you know, doing their thing and our main characters are going to stop them or figure out who it is. That's what I assumed. I mean, you think about something like Zodiac or I don't know, just any other movie you've ever seen about serial killers. And that's what I thought going in. And this one is weird in that it almost feels like primarily a coming of age story. You know, we have two kids that are our primary main characters and it's like, what if you found out that maybe a serial killer was somebody in your family or super close to you? Would you try and expose that at the cost of ruining your family dynamic? Would you try and find justice even though it happened years ago? It's this whole weird thing. And my biggest surprise with it in a great way is that they kind of resolve the main mystery of the story way, way, way earlier than you would ever think. I don't want to like say exactly when, but it's not near the end. I mean, they kind of get to that stuff pretty quick and there's no red herrings thrown at you. And then the rest of the movie just becomes, what would you do if you were in these character situations? And I think for that reason, it really surprised me. Dylan McDermott is a very charismatic actor that I've seen on TV and movies, but he plays kind of um, the patriarch of a family and it's a very hard role to play, very awkward, but kind of charismatic and engaging at the same time. And you're kind of wondering, could this guy be capable of evil? And it's just this whole thing and just a great package overall. So it's a serial killer drama combined with a coming of age story. And yeah, just really surprised me. What what do you guys think? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I was really impressed with Dylan McDermott's performance in this one. I think you nailed it. All the different dynamics he has to play. He has to be this guy who you can see as like a loving father and community leader. And at the same time, have like just something more beneath the surface where you could see him as this killer that's been haunting this town. Um, so I was really impressed with his performance. It's something I wanted more of, but when we got it, I liked how it was kind of a cat and mouse game between the father and then the son and his friends. Like I, I liked all those elements too that were going on in this movie. Yeah, I, I just started the movie, so I'm not, I'm not even halfway through it yet. And I watched the trailer before it started. You know, from what I have seen, yeah, it seems like Dylan McDermott's character is going to be making his son very uncomfortable. Yeah, and to that point, Keith, it kind of brings something to the table that a lot of these, you know, I don't know what you would call them, like killer based movies or TV series or even like docu-series. Like I think about um, documentaries that I've seen on Ted Bundy, for example, and they really play up. I mean, the reason this guy was able to do what he did is because he was so charismatic that people just gravitated towards him. And I like that this movie kind of foregoes just like tons of blood and gore and tons of violence that you would see from serial killers. And it really is about, hey, could this guy realistically manipulate you into thinking that he's an actually good guy or that he's not a bad guy either way you want to look at it so they really play with that kind of classic dynamic that you hear about these killers that they well we as the audience are watching like hey that's a killer get away from that person how could you be so stupid but in the moment the characters you go oh watching this movie i totally get why they wouldn't think that so i think it's another you know point in dylan mcdermott's corner and the writing in general i mean really well done i do have a question for you though matt because i was left i did want a bit more ambiguity from the movie it doesn't really leave any room for doubt and and like you said they do answer the question very early on i was curious how you were left feeling about how like there's really no room to doubt anything in this film it kind of tells you exactly what the answers are yeah and i think in most movies i wouldn't like that i mean it brings to mind stuff like inception where it's like were you happy with the ending leaving it so ambiguous and of course some movies and tv shows can work that way but I think you can do something like the Clovich Killer, which, again, I know, Keith, you haven't finished it, but I think it's kind of a fun point to get you teased and the audience teased to watch more because, like Austin said, maybe the ending of this 
won't be ambiguous. It's going to kind of answer all the questions. But the cool thing is it kind of does a flip on it. So by the end, you're not really wondering, well, man, I, I wish they would have like brought up some other ideas for who could have done it or something like that, maybe given us some more mysteries. It kind of brings in a really interesting moral dilemma by the end, which I found really engaging. It's like, oh, like some characters are trying to pursue justice in this movie, and that means we have to get th this person arrested or kill this person. And then other characters are like, well, we can't do that. I mean, that could totally ruin this small community we have that's so tight knit. So is it worth doing that? So it really was this kind of conundrum that by the end, even I was like, oh, I feel conflicted either way, but I'm glad the movie's making me feel that way because it's not something you get in stories like this. So yeah, while it's not ambiguous, it does kind of, you know, leave you the audience kind of thinking maybe more than you would if it had had some more ambiguity, for example. Like basically, like I said earlier, what would you do in this situation? Which is like, oh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> but it's a really kind of weird, fun feeling to have. Like you guys mentioned, he's like this like really good guy. He like uh, serves a lot in the community and he's a Boy Scout leader. So like the complete opposite of who you would expect to be uh, a serial killer. And I, I, for some reason, it just makes it creepier that it's like the least um, the person you least expect. And and the fact that it's kind of an original idea, I guess, and the fact that um, it is a family member, not not like the guy next door. Uh, like a movie that comes to mind would be like that uh, Disturbia. That's like yeah, that's kind of, that kind of movie I was kind of relating it to. But but this one is his actual dad. <laughs> so or like Rear Window. It's like those stories mm -hmm. kind of have. I mean, while they're great, I mean, it's less of a moral dilemma because it's like, oh yeah, I mean that person's doing bad things, so I'm going to stop them. Whereas this story kind of presents something a little bit different. It's like, I mean, I want to stop them. I want to do good things. But and it's like what surprised me most is like, but can I or should I even like what would that do to everybody else? I mean, it's just something that we don't see in some of these classic, you know, killer type stories. The dilemma at the end, I thought was really great because when it first happened, I was like, really? Like, this shouldn't be a hard choice. But then when they show you the results of the decision and you, you kind of have to sit with it for like maybe 15 to 20 minutes more of the movie, it really grew on me. And I was like, oh, this was actually a really compelling and hard choice. And I can see now why it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the ending, too. I don't think this is the type of thing where we're going to need to, you know, spoil it for the audience or anybody that hasn't finished it yet or anything like that. I think um, it's just really different and surprising whether or not you end up loving the movie or hating it or falling somewhere in between i think you can at least watch a story like this and appreciate how different it is and i do like what austin said there it's like everything just happens so much quicker than you'd expect you know they kind of answer the mystery like i said then by the end they kind of resolve the choice um but then there's still more of the movie so you get to kind of sit with it for a little bit longer and kind of go oh man wow we're seeing the results and like the epilogue of what actually happened and you get to just think more about what you would do and what the characters actually did and whether or not you agree with it. And some characters in the movie do, some don't. So it's a really interesting thing. So yeah, just another point in its corner. Another thing I really liked. Well, The Clove Hitch Killer is available to stream on Netflix right now. So I think we would all recommend checking it out. And Matt, if you want any more serial killer content, I have a really, really good show that just dropped on Netflix earlier this year that I got to recommend. And that is The Chestnut Man. It's a Dutch show. It's a slow burn. It's from the producers of The Killing. It's fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. You got to check that one out. I do. I know you have mentioned that one. It's on my list. I'm looking at my list right now as we're recording this. And I'm like, oh, that one's still on there. So I got to watch that. Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. But all right, let's move on to our next movie here. Austin, I know you got one for us. Bring it in. 
Yeah, mine is Edge of Tomorrow, directed by Doug Lyman and starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. So like I mentioned at the top, this is a movie that was like, all right, Tom Cruise, he's getting a paycheck, going to phone one in. We all got to do it every now and then. Went to the theaters expecting nothing. And then 25 minutes in and it resets. And it's like, oh, wow, this is going to be really cool. The action is staged really well. They do the time loop really effectively. It's really believable how long they've been going through all the events of this war. Um, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt have great chemistry. And I just remember this being like one of the most surprising movies of the years. Like a a cult fan base grew around it. It got so much word of mouth. Um, And yeah, just a movie that really surprised me in theaters. And I had zero expectations going into it. Tom Cruise's character dies and you're like, holy shit. (laughs) And then all of a sudden he just wakes up again and, and Bill Paxton is there yelling at him. Yeah, I think um, the initial most surprising thing they give us right in the opening minutes of the movie, I want to hear your guys' thoughts, is um, Tom Cruise, you know, whether or not you like him as an actor, I know I really love him as an actor, uh, personal life aside, but the reason I bring up the personal life is because it kind of plays into this, is in a lot of his recent acting roles from the last 20 years, it really is about him, whether it be Ethan Hunt and Mission Impossible, he's like, calm, cool, collected, and you just kind of look at Tom Cruise and it's like, that guy can get his way out of anything. He can solve any problem. And then in the opening minutes of this movie, it's like, oh, he's a coward. He's not really a great guy necessarily, at least in terms of what his role is in in like the military or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it doesn't mean he can't be afraid, but he's like trying to sidestep his duties, getting out of this situation. He's going to go AWOL. And it's like, oh, wow. Okay, so here's a Tom Cruise character that's a little bit different. The normal and watching that arc kind of play out over the movie. And then by the end, he becomes kind of what you expect from Tom Cruise was way more satisfying than it had any right being. And I remember in the theater when I watched it, I was like, wow, I did, I did not expect to get this type of um, just different acting role for Tom Cruise and watching him like meet Emily Blunt and then them work together and then they become more confident in their own shoes. I mean, really cool. Had no idea we were going to get that going in. I've never seen a timelet movie set in a full world scale war, an invasion movie. Um, So for me, that was really cool. And it really does feel like a video game. How when you you memorize the levels, you know where all the enemies are going to be because you've done it so many times. They really I I loved how much time they spent showing them maybe making it like 100 feet further on the beach and dying, but then mapping it out on their board and planning out each step. And okay, you're going to take three steps here, turn right and shoot. I, I love how much time they devote to them, like actually training and making you as the audience believe that they've done this like millions of times. And I really liked Emily Blunt. Her performance is pretty fantastic. I think this might actually be my favorite Emily Blunt movie. Yeah, well, it kind of goes back to the thing I mentioned earlier about Tom Cruise. While he is the lead of the movie in terms of his personality and his knowledge of how this world works, he isn't. I like that Emily Blunt is kind of the more badass. She is the leader. She is the most knowledgeable. I like that Tom Cruise was able to kind of take a back seat for once. Not that he's part of a huge ensemble here, but the fact that, you know, there's a character that is kind of way more important to the story and it's her. And Emily Blunt just nailed the role and it was so awesome. Like her action scenes are great. I did also like another unique twist on the time loop genre is that Emily Blunt is a character who's been in the time loop in the past, but is no longer. And so Tom Cruise is developing a relationship with her. You can buy why he would kind of fall for her. But every time they meet, it's still her first time. And I really like her line at the kind of towards the end of the movie where she's like, I would have really liked to have gotten to know you someday. But she just hasn't yet. But he spent so much time with her. I thought that relationship was super unique. 
Yeah, I think it's also fun. It almost feels like they um took some of the behind the scenes and just classic stories from something like Groundhog Day, which I know there's other time loop stories, but for whatever reason, whenever people talk about those, they refer to something like that. And I remember Harold Ramis always talks about um the writing in that movie. It's like people would ask him, so how long was Bill Murray in the loop? And it's like, well, you know, if you think about it, there's some evidence that maybe it was not that long, maybe like a year. But if you take into account all the things and skills he mastered along the way, could have been like 10,000 years. You know, we kind of played it. So it was either way. And I like that this movie, it kind of feels like, oh, it's not that long that he's in there. Right. I mean, we're seeing tons of loops, but it's not like crazy. But then you have moments later in the movie where Emily Blunt, like Austin said, having had that prior knowledge, there's this great scene in the barn where she turns to him and it's like, how many times have we been here? How many times have we done this? And it's like really somber. And it, you kind of get the idea years, maybe this like we could have been here an infinite number of times. And he just knows this is the end of the line. We never get past it. Um, so they kind of play with like the whole actual amount of times he's been in the loop in some really interesting ways, which I really liked. And having a character who's been in the time loop before and can explain it to him was really interesting, too. Like she knows how it works. She knows how you lose it. Um, and, and just having kind of like a mentor role in a time loop movie was kind of fun, too. All right. Well, Keith, you recommended a Guy Ritchie movie with an all-star cast that I had somehow never heard of. Why don't you tell me about it? The the movie you never heard of or the cast? Like, I've heard of the cast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, Austin, I actually had never heard of... Well, I guess I did hear of Snatch uh, before I watched it, but I didn't really know much about it. I just knew it was a Guy Ritchie movie, and I think... Um, before I get into my thoughts, I'll, I'll say the cast. It has Jason Statham, Stephen Graham, Brad Pitt, Alan Ford, Lenny James, Benicio Del Toro, Benny Jones, and many more. So Stephen Graham, Jason Statham plays, plays these boxing matchmakers. And so they're going around looking for guys to match up. And they end up finding a guy named Mickey, who's played by Brad Pitt, who's a gypsy. They need him to fall in the fights in order for their boss... Bricktop to win his money and his bets. And at the same time, there's another heist going on with diamonds, a whole other cast of characters that are funny. And somehow they all kind of come together to the end and then the movie ends. And it's just a really funny ride all the way around. And I enjoyed it all the way throughout. So that's kind of my general thoughts on it. This is my first time seeing Snatch, and uh, I was surprised at how unrecognizable Brad Pitt is. His accent's really impressive, even though you know it's like a gibberish accent, but it's still really cool the way he does it. Yeah, I hadn't seen Snatch all the way through before, um, and I really, really enjoyed it as well. I think the most impressive thing and most surprising thing about it for me, at least, was whenever they introduced each of the characters in the intro, kind of giving them all a little bit of a like single shot and then throwing their name up on the screen, a little fun uh, graphic essentially is like, wow, there are a lot of characters here. I mean, how are they going to juggle all of this and tell kind of a cohesive story that presumably will have them interact in some way? I guess all these people are going to be part of this big story. Are they going to come into contact with each other? I have no idea. And then watching it play out, it's like, wow, I think Guy Ritchie and the team really did a great job of involving everybody in the ensemble in just enough of a way. You know, they have some recognizable actors, some more character actors and some smaller players, but they all come together in a really satisfying way. And by the end, it's like, wow, you know, thinking back to that intro, I really do feel like I got to know each of these characters and had fun with each of them. And they each gave like a great fun performance. And some of them, 
were like, oh, I didn't expect them to go down that path or have that fate. So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised mainly just how they handled the ensemble in such a satisfying way. We do have kind of multiple sets of ensembles and ongoing stories, like Keith said. And I think in a, in a lot of movies, they would find a way that they're all involved in each other's lives. And in this movie, it's, it's not really that. They, they really only all come together in one quick sequence at the end. But somehow it still really works. Um, and, and you still do get to know each one of these characters. And they all have their own different elements into this grander story. Yeah. And it was also cool because watching the opening of the movie, I was like getting a headache with how like they were cutting with the editing and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, clearly Guy Ritchie hasn't you know refined his style yet. And I was like really not liking it. But then as it went on, it was like, okay, getting more used to it. And you could actually kind of see some of his like auteur style coming through, especially in some of the slow motion fight scenes. And of course, feel reminiscent of the Sherlock Holmes stuff that we see with Robert Downey Jr. and that slow motion stuff like that felt very similar to what Guy Ritchie did there. And it's like you can actually kind of see like a young director kind of uh, discovering their style on the way, which is super cool. So if you're somebody that has seen, I don't know, some like more recent Guy Ritchie stuff, whether it be Lockstock or the Sherlock Holmes movies, The Gentleman too, it's like you can actually see where somebody like him kind of got his start and started to form that style, which is really cool too. It was cool to see Jason Statham not just being like an action hero. Like he's actually having to act in this movie, which I thought was nice from Jason. Yeah. And he was also like our main narrator. I wouldn't call him the main character in the story, but I mean, he is the one providing all the narration and it was really pretty engaging. So that was fun to see too. Uh, what y'all think of Alan Ford as Bricktop? I actually thought he was actually probably the most disturbing and kind of the character that had like the most, uh, I don't know, uh, weight to him. Yeah, it's funny, though, because he's not he's surrounded by all these fighters and these guys who are experienced like shooters or whatever. Like they're all good at something. Physically, he doesn't appear to have any of those traits, but he's somehow still the most menacing person on screen. Yeah, yeah, like the Bond villain vibe, because it's just like, oh, he doesn't seem that scary. Then whenever you meet him and start talking to him and you find out that he literally kills all these people all the time or has his cronies do it. And then they cut them up and he has a pig farm. He has just enough pigs so that they can kill people and like shave their bodies and remove the teeth and just throw uncooked meat into a farm of starving pigs that they'll eat it. And I guess hungry pigs can do that in just a couple minutes. So it's basically just like a convenience thing for him. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's terrifying. From my experience working on a pig farm, I can confirm pigs will eat anything. There you go. Even each other. <laughs> so don't die around a pig. Moral of the story. Thank you, Guy Ritchie. So my next one is a documentary called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? This one was directed by John Schnepp, and it features Tim Burton, Kevin Smith, John Peters, Colleen Atwood, and many, many more behind the scenes of the failed and later canceled movie, Superman Lives. So in the late 90s, it was a big deal. Tim Burton, he had just come off making two Batman movies a few years before, and it was like, you know what? We knocked Batman out of the park. They got Christopher Reeves, Superman. They knocked those out of the park. But what can we do to bring Superman back to the forefront? And they're like, well, you know what? We'll get Tim Burton. Well, know what? Nicolas Cage, who just won an Oscar. He's one of the biggest names in Hollywood. We'll get him to play Clark Kent. There you go. And it sounds like, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been a great movie, but at least that must have been made. That would have gotten a huge budget. So why did it not? So in 2015, John Schnepp made a documentary about that exact story. Why did this movie not get made? They interviewed all the writers, all the producers, some of the people like costume designers, production designers, the art people, the people that were trying to make 
all these crazy visions come to life from Tim Burton and why didn't that happen? And it's really cool seeing all these different takes on it. And the reason this one surprised me is like, I'm just personally interested in Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage projects and the fact that they were going to make a Superman movie in the late 90s and it got canceled. I was like, how is that possible? It just seems like that would have seen the light of day. Um, But the cool thing about this documentary is after you get through the first maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes, it starts to become more about the Hollywood machine in general. How many hands are kind of in the cookie jar when it comes to these huge blockbuster movies and how everybody has an opinion. And sometimes if somebody owns the rights, maybe they're not that involved with the project, but you kind of have to listen to them and do what they say. Maybe by the end of a project, you have three to five different writers working on something, but one director. And how is this a cohesive thing? And hearing all these different people come together and just talk about their history with this movie was really cool because it sounds like they were all, for better or worse, super passionate about it and wanted it to happen. And it just didn't work out. So seeing the behind the scenes footage, the documentary footage, all these interviews was super enjoyable for me as a fan of Superman, fan of Nick Cage and a fan of Tim Burton. Yeah, I was just surprised at how much access they got mm. and how many people were willing to sit and talk on camera about this project. Because I think everyone at this point has seen the infamous photo of Nicolas Cage from the hotel room in the Superman costume where it just looks terrible. Yeah. Um, and I think there were so many people behind this project that wanted to almost like this was their chance to set the record straight about what was actually happening with this photo, but then also beyond Um, And I think you called out the passion there, Matt. That's what I was surprised about the most, because for me, like the idea of a Nicolas Cage, Tim Burton, Superman movie today is just so bonkers. But it was really interesting to go back and kind of put yourself in these people's chairs at the time of when this movie was being made. It's like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't as crazy of an idea as it sounds today. I could definitely picture it, especially in the 90s. I can picture a younger Nick Cage And obviously, it makes sense why they went after Tim Burton. Like we said, he just did the same thing for Batman, so why not Superman? Um, And yeah, it was cool, like Austin said. I mean, when you see that picture, it's like, oh, it's just so ridiculous. But then it's like when you hear the story, it's like, okay, so they're going to tackle the classic death of Superman at the hands of Doomsday and then watch him come back to life and how that ties back into his Kryptonian roots. Yeah, they were planning a trilogy. Yeah, watch him fully resurrect. And of course, his relationship with Lois Lane was a big part of that. And it actually sounded... You know, maybe some of the art direction would have been crazier than we thought, but the story itself sounded pretty sound. And having Brainiac be a part of that, Lex Luthor, of course, Doomsday, sounds like they had the right villains attached. So, I mean, it could have been super cool. I will say, though, there are two people that did not come off very favorably to me in this documentary, and that is John Peters and Kevin Smith. (laughs) Um, John Peters just seems like an ass, and I would never want to work with him, especially on a, a passion project like Superman. And then Kevin Smith, man... He literally was like, I was going to do all my ideas at once if I had a chance to write this movie. (laughs) He literally said, I was going to blow my load. That's how he described his writing process. (laughs) (laughs) Which has to be true to life, knowing his body of work. But yeah, I mean, what a weird back and forth. I will say the cool thing, though, is hearing, I mean, literally they show Kevin Smith talking about what John Peters told him he had to do in the movie. And then cutting back to John Peters like, oh, I never said that. And then cutting to Kevin Smith like, "Uh, yeah, he did. So even though they both don't come off very favorably, it is cool that there's a documentary out there that gets these two people's point of views on one like topic. Yeah, basically, that was cool for people out there that haven't seen it. Or Keith, I mean, it's just like John Peters, according to Kevin Smith, said that Superman can't fly in this movie. He didn't want to see him fly because it would look stupid, according to him. He also couldn't wear his classic red and blue suit. 
because we've seen it enough times, so it can't be in there. Get him out of that underwear. And then his third thing was the final fight of the movie had to be against a giant spider because he thought that that would be super fun. He wanted his King Kong moment. Well, then the funny thing is that um, Kevin Smith near the end of the documentary talked about, yeah, they they fired me, replaced me with somebody else. But then it was funny because then the next year he went to go see Wild Wild West in theaters with Will Smith and Kevin Kline. And John Peters produced that movie, and the final fight at the end of that is that Kenneth Branagh turns into a huge giant spider, and Kevin Smith was like, man, I did not like working with John Peters, but he got his giant spider. (laughs) It was a dumb-looking spider, too, in that movie. (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. Matt, were you surprised at how much Tim Burton was willing to talk? Very surprised. I thought we would get him for, like, one little interview segment, but they actually... I mean, they asked me a bunch of questions and he had a lot to say. It sounded I was surprised to see that he actually sounded genuinely sad to kind of reflect on this project. He was like he was totally down to talk, but he was after a while. He was like, oh, man, I'm kind of getting nostalgic and I wish we could have made this movie. I'm sad it didn't happen. And it sounds like it really soured his relationship with a lot of people over at Warner Brothers and some of the producers on that movie because he felt that it was their fault it didn't happen. So. And he was sad about that, and he felt that he wasted a few years on his life trying to make it come to fruition. And, you know, yeah. So it was really cool to get his perspective on it, too. Hearing him talk about how he only really liked Batman as a kid, but then working towards the Superman project, he started to see how that character kind of – he found similarities within himself, being kind of a quote-unquote alien um, on Earth, feeling like nobody really understood him. He really resonated with that, so it was cool to hear him actually say that as opposed to just reading it in a random news article years later yeah i was surprised um because for whatever reason i always thought like tim burton was kind of getting forced into the superman movie by the studio like he didn't really want to do it but for whatever reason contractually he had to and i was just really surprised to hear him say like man i was really excited i had all these ideas i was going to try out like i was i was surprised specifically at how passionate tim burton was about making the superman movie with nick cage And then on the flip side of that, I was surprised that Nick Cage didn't talk at all for this documentary. Yeah, I was disappointed in that. I don't know why. I don't know why they couldn't get him if he was like shooting something at the time or if he was busy. But he's such a Superman fan. It sounds like he would have. uh, I mean, he named his son Kal-El. So it sounds like he would have been down (laughs) to talk about Superman. But for whatever reason, he wasn't on it. It was really cool seeing the behind the scenes stuff of him like trying on outfits what my favorite moment of the entire documentary is so much footage yeah and i think Keith, you'll like this and the audience but there's this one really cool moment where he's in the hotel room and he's trying on clark kent outfits of like what he would look like as the daily bugle photographer or whatever you want to call it um and he's wearing like a very loose sports blazer a mickey mouse shirt he has kind of long uh hair and then like you know big glasses or whatever and they were like why are you wearing that and he was like well, my interpretation of like what an alien on Earth would be, this is how that alien would look at other people. And this is what he would deem normal. Like, you know, he just like sees like a figure like Mickey Mouse is like, oh, I guess people like that. So I'll put that on my shirt. I guess people, you know, that's cool. And so it was kind of a really interesting take on Clark Kent, too. We heard a lot about Superman, but he had some interesting ideas, I think, for the actual persona, which we haven't seen. And certainly, I would say, you know, the modern takes or even some of the past takes. So that would have been cool to see, too. Yeah. Some of those takes wouldn't really work, though, because Clark Kent grew up on Earth. I know. I know. I I was thinking about that, too. And I was like, oh, maybe that doesn't work at all. So, you know, who knows? They tried. (laughs) Or I loved how, uh, like, 
when there, there's more footage too of, of him trying on Superman costume and he's, he's talking with Tim Burton. I can't remember word for word, but basically he's like, we're going to do everything different and it's going to be weird. And then him and Tim Burton like look at each other and they fist bump. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing I'll say on that before we move on is I think there's tons of things about this one that surprised me. I think if you're somebody that doesn't even love comic book movies or anything like that, this might be a documentary worth watching. I think it's free on YouTube because, like I said, it really does get more into the big budget Hollywood film process. How these movies kind of come from an idea. They put money behind it. You see how just the sheer amount of people that work on these types of things. And then sometimes the plug gets pulled and it's all over. And it's kind of sad, but you actually get to hear from all these different people. So it's cool in that sense. I can definitively say by the end, I went into this the first time, not really caring if I ever saw a Nick Cage or Tim Burton Superman movie. And by the end, I was like, ah, kind of sad we didn't get it for better or worse. I left wanting to see like what it would have looked like. I still don't think it would have been good, mm-hmm. but I would definitely want to see what they would have tried to make. Um, something else I'll call out too is how many hours of work go into making a movie before you even start shooting? These um, these costume designers and these production people spent hours and hours and hours working on just making a Superman metallic suit like light up correctly with fluorescent lighting, like stuff like that, that you have to make so you can do tests with the actors and, and get things ready to shoot. I didn't even realize how much time goes into some of that stuff. It's amazing, right? Every time like we go watch like a Marvel movie and, you know, we're waiting for the end credits scene to come up and you're just all those credits going by and you're looking, I'm reading it all the different department labels and, and mm-hmm. their titles and all that. I'm like, God, you would think this would take years to make, but looking at all these names and what they did, but they get it done. And you know, like maybe like a 30, 40 day shoot. And then they got maybe a year to year and a half, maybe sometimes less to edit and all that kind of stuff. And then they got the pre-shoot production. It's amazing how they get it done within like a year and a half to two year span. Yeah. Such a great point. And it's another interesting aspect about it too, Keith. I didn't even think about until you mentioned that, but Another maybe potentially interesting thing about this documentary is that this wasn't in the age of the superhero movie in the MCU or the DCE, whatever you want to call it. This was, you know, you had the Tim Burton Batman movies and then there was a little bit of a gap and then this would have happened. It seems like this would have been before like Blade, X-Men, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. So this was in an era where superhero movies weren't, you know, all the rage. So it, it, it there was more time being put into it. They were trying to figure out how to do it. So if you're somebody that loves superhero movies now, you can kind of see how that process started to become more normal back then, too. And with that, um, we've been talking a lot about producers and the money men, the people that put all the money into these movies to make them happen. And sometimes it doesn't work out. But Austin, tell me about a different money man, maybe an accountant, if you will. Yeah. So my next movie that surprised me is The Accountant, um, directed by Gavin O'Connor, starring Ben Affleck, Anna Kendrick, and J.K. Simmons. This movie follows a seemingly mundane accountant. Um, and as the movie goes on, there's more revealed about our main character. Um, he is autistic. He was raised by his military father. And he has a very elite set of skills and training that lets him work on the accounts of some, some of the most dangerous people um, in the world. Cartels, mafia. Um, really, really anybody who needs um, help hiding their money. Uh, ben Affleck's character is very good at that. Um, I'll just say going into it, what surprised me, I remember going into this movie and being like, okay, yeah, this is like the Ben Affleck tough guy movie, right? Um, and that's kind of all I knew. And then as the movie goes on, and there's a lot more to this character that meets the eye, especially tackling an illness like Asperger's um, in this type of character and, and their relationship with his father, and then also his relationship interacting with Anna Kendrick's character. 
it's weirdly kind of a very sweet story. And then it also has some really cool action scenes too. And I think all around, it's just a really great thriller. It was my first time seeing it. I was blown away by it. I thought it was pretty cool. And you, you hit it in all points. It was really cool to see how this guy deals with his mental illness, but he like uses it to his advantage in like a really crazy way, both mentally and physically. Um, and it's just kind of cool how he evolved over time and became what he was. But yeah, I really liked the story and action was good and and everything having to do with the numbers and all that was awesome as well. Yeah, this is a really, really interesting one for me because I, I'll just say, I don't love this movie. I like it. Um, the most surprising thing for me is that it just has so many amazing pieces to it. I just read uh, like right before we recorded that Gavin O'Connor said like last month that they uh, Ben Affleck and he and John Bernthal signed uh, some deals to make the sequel finally. And Ooh. I hope that happens because Me even too. though even though I will say I do I, I like this movie a lot. I'm just not like a huge fan of it. I think there are so many great individual parts of it, mainly Ben Affleck's performance that I hope that sequel happens. I think they could take some of the criticism that the movie got and they can take all the positives too and they could make an even even better movie and I really like the world they made I think it's really really interesting yeah I don't think it's a perfect movie by any means it, it definitely has some issues when it comes together at the end it's kind of hard to follow and then it does take some kind of leaps of logic to believe all of that um the thing that I think I come for is the performances yeah and then I stay I stay for the action for sure for sure and I love how with Ben Affleck's character because of the way the physical training was kind of beat into him as a way to cope with his mental illness. When he does it as an adult, it's almost like he's a robot. Like he just switches into this mode, doesn't think about anything. He's just reacting because of all the training he's had. And just something about the way Ben Affleck portrays that on his face in this movie, you totally buy that this character has had his whole childhood and, and, and young adult life training to be in these situations. And I just like how his whole persona filters out bad people from like his personal life like it automatically filters it into like good people like Anna Kendrick's character J.K. Simmons mm -hmm. character and then the, the the couple at the farm who let him yeah. uh, use their land for shooting and all that uh, I thought that was really cool I actually I really like the action as well I was hoping we get a little bit more of it but on the flip side in a positive way I <laughs> was really surprised that the I guess you would call it maybe the titular accounting was kind of interesting and watching him watch too. yeah watching him be served a problem from this huge client of where is this money going and then watching him over the course of a night essentially discover that problem watching him explain it to other people i was like wow this is shockingly engaging for something that should be pretty mundane uh so they did a really good job filming that and having ben affleck uh read those lines and deliver all that anna kendrick's great in the movie too she always brings like a wit and charm to her roles, but especially in this movie, like taking a character like her and putting her in this violent world somehow just kind of made her more endearing, I feel like, in this movie. I just love how she conversates with him. He like she knows he's awkward, but she kinda but she's kinda awkward too, I guess. So they kinda it kinda fits. That one scene wherever the, the guys are racing one of the numbers on the board, I was like, Oh shit. Ben, ben Affleck's going to shit a brick when he gets in here. <laughs> <laughs> There's a standout line from Ben Affleck in this movie that makes me laugh every time I see it. And it's in the opening when he's just helped the couple and he's saying goodbye to them. He comes back into the office and like the little secretary later is like, I love to set you up with my daughter. And he's just like, hi, how are you? Just goes straight back <laughs> into his office. <laughs> Shuts the door. <laughs> yeah. He's really good in this. He's really good. I will say this movie also handles flashbacks really well. Oh, yeah. I'm excited every time we get one. 
and that that's that's good to call out because I don't think flashbacks ever elicit that feeling like ever for me. It's like sometimes, oh, OK, cool. I'm, I'm probably going to get some interesting information. But in this movie, I was like genuinely, OK, yes, I want to see more of his childhood and see what led from him being where he was at uh, in the initial um, neuroscience facility to where he is like as an actual accountant. Like, how did he get there? And so seeing some of those flashbacks was really, really cool. But having somebody with Asperger's like um, Christian Wolf, uh, played by Ben Affleck, um, I think it can be hard because he's like in his 40s. It's like they show his dad in the flashbacks and that in, in that initial scene, it's like, oh, man, it's going to be really tough. Like He's just like, no, fuck treatment. This is the wrong thing. I don't like that. Like my son, he just needs to be out in the real world. Like that's a recipe for a really kind of like hard character to root for. And I think the movie does like a really, really great job over the course of it of they never say that the dad was right. You never by the end go, that was the right call. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think by the end, you're still like, yeah, that was bad. But the, the dad loves him. Oh, yeah. He's very sure. harsh. And he has, of course, this very weird like I'm going to train my sons to be like, you know, the top of their class, like these fighters. But he still loves them both equally. And at the beginning, based on that initial scene, it's like, oh, I guess he's going to resent this kid. That's never the case. So there's some really cool kind of subversions, I guess, which I, I did not know going in, which I really, really appreciated. And the flashback scene, too, where his father just steps in front of the bullet for Christian is like super emotional. Like they did a really good job of making you attach to this father and, and also being attached to how he relates to Christian's life. I liked the, the whole brother dynamic, too. With mm -hmm. him and John Bernthal. I think we did say uh, that the end, did, it was kind of uh, wrapped up weird, and it was kind of fast. I did like that John Bernthal was, in fact, his brother. It's a fun twist. Yeah. I like it. But that last scene was just a little little off for me. I just kind of like it, just like, all right, brother, we'll see you in a week. And, then, <laughs> and that was it. It felt like there should have been like one more scene. With yeah. yeah. The movie just ends. It's kind of weird. At least just like have whenever he's driving at the end, smiling about the Anna Kendrick thing, just like have the camera pan over and like John Bernthal's in the passenger seat or something, just anything. But I really actually like that twist, too. I guess what I was referring to, and I'd be curious what you think, Austin, is I think maybe they realize it feels like the writers realized in real time that the J.K. Simmons twist maybe was one step too far, because I think the Anna Kendrick resolution is great. The John Lithgow resolution slash villain twist is great. The John Bernthal brother twist. I wouldn't call it great, but I would call it really fun. Like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Uh, all that stuff works. I just think that this weird um, like cop or FBI involvement is kind of interesting. But again, that's another piece that I think could really be developed in a super cool way in the sequel. That's the thing that falls apart for me is the J.K. Simmons and Christian Wolf relationship. How he's just been feeding him information for everybody that breaks his moral code. But he's at the same time not doing that for everybody. So it gets yeah. a little jumbled there. They also don't really explain how he got from Christian Wolf in the military with his father, Christian Wolf in like a high security prison. Christian Wolf worked for the government. Christian Wolf is now just an everyday accountant that's out of all of that. Like it's yeah. very quick how they tell that flashback. I remember going in expecting that like whenever they're like, oh, and Jeffrey Tampor died. So then he murdered like 12 people in an Italian restaurant. Um, it wasn't an Italian restaurant, but I just assume whenever you hear all the accents, I was like, it must be an Italian restaurant. Oh, my meatball. But, um, I always expected like the dad was like the cause of that. And it's like, oh no, it's not. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, it definitely gets muddled by the end, but there are so many good like storylines left open that, ah, God, it's been so many years, but you got to return to the accountant world, Gavin O'Connor. You have to. 
Remember when Gavin O'Connor was going to make a Batman movie? Was he? At some point, he was attached to that Ben Affleck movie. Ooh. And then Ben Affleck was no longer attached. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that surprising movie. I mean, in 20 years, they're going to make the death of Ben Affleck Batman. What happened? <laughs> Kevin Smith will, for some reason, be on it talking about it, even though he had no involvement in his big hockey jersey. And we'll have to talk about that again. So there you go. Keith, close us out, my friend. You have the last movie that surprised you. Tell us about News of the World. News of the World. It's directed by Paul Greengrass, starring Tom Hanks and Helena Zingle. This is the Tom Hanks wagon movie, right? It is a Tom Hanks wagon movie, Austin, for sure. I'm a wagon. So Tom Hanks plays a a former Confederate uh, captain. His job now in the 1870s is to read the news from town to town all over Texas. And uh, he comes across a little girl who he learns her, that her name is uh, Joanna. And so he takes her, tries to get, with, get her with the right people to get her where she needs to be. But it turns out there is no one to do that. So he has to take her on this trek all the way to uh, a little town outside of San Antonio from Fort Worth. And, you know, in those days, that takes like weeks to get across Texas. It takes, it takes 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So pretty much it's him and this little girl who was once abducted by the Kiowa, so she speaks no English. She only speaks Kiowa, and she speaks a little bit of German as well. Their whole relationship throughout, I really thought was really cool, which is why I really like this movie. Tom Hanks' character is Captain Kidd. like just super calm, well-put-together guy, a great reader, great storyteller, because uh, he kind of makes the news come to life. And then he's now he's with this girl. He speaks no English at all, but somehow they're able, still able to communicate in this really neat way. Uh, throughout the movie, and they kind of just learn more about each other as their trek goes on. But uh, yeah, the ending was satisfying. It wrapped up in a really cool way, and it's just a just a cool story throughout. So it's a western. I'm a sucker for westerns, but you know these days you don't we don't we really don't get too many of them. So I just thought I'd give it a watch, and I was blown away. Yeah, for sure. I really really enjoyed this movie. I, I had no idea what to expect going in. Never saw a trailer for it, and I will say this. There was one major thing that didn't surprise me, and it was that Tom Hanks could develop a relationship with somebody without being able to necessarily communicate with them. I feel like we've seen him be such a confident actor in the past. I mean, I mean, of course he can communicate with somebody that doesn't speak the same language because he can fucking be best friends with a volleyball in Castaway. So yeah. watching that, I was like, okay, I, I'm not surprised there. I mean, Tom Hanks is so charismatic, very good in this movie. The thing that did surprise me, and it is a very general point, you know, granted, but was seeing Tom Hanks in a Western. Am I crazy? Have we seen this before? I mean, that aspect was unexpected. That's what intrigues me about the movie. Yeah, it it was really cool to see somebody like that dress in a way that fit that time period. And it just was really interesting seeing him in a movie like this. I really enjoyed it. So does it follow some of like the traditional Western tropes like is Tom Hanks a really good gunslinger or are like, are there a lot of shootouts or how does it kind of play out? He's not like the fastest gun in the West, uh, you know, as they usually do, but he's, he's yeah. a, he's a okay enough gunslinger that makes sense for his character. Cause he is a former Confederate captain. He has to name his identity. So he like tells his, like, a little like a brief history of who he is. And he's like, uh, yeah, from former Confederate captain surrendered out of Galveston, Texas, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he has some military history. And so you do get to see, some of that in the movie, they do get into some skirmishes with some guys where he does have to sling his guns. Um, but it's definitely more realistic, I would say, as far as the gunslinging moments. You don't get a lot of the crazy, like I said, fastest gun in the West, like twirling guns around and like shooting them 
like within two seconds. It's more of like a realistic gunfight for sure. Which is cool to see too. Um, it did feel, what did you think? It felt purposeful to me. I feel like we haven't seen Confederate like affiliated or past affiliated people in Western since like the 90s. It almost felt purposeful, not in a bad way, but to have Tom Hanks play that character because I wasn't like, obviously, you know, Confederate ideals or affiliation is like, oh, I don't like that at all. But then after it goes on and you see, oh, that was in my past, I surrendered, I'm Tom Hanks, and then I'm developing this relationship with somebody else. It was like, okay, I guess I can root for this character, at least try to. So you warm up to them a bit faster than I expected, which I think was a good choice. Do they go into why he was in the Confederate Army? They try to flesh that out. I think out he at all? just lived there. Yeah, and so that, oh, okay. that's a big theme with a lot of that a lot of people like don't really realize with that that part of history is that some people didn't fight for the Confederacy or the Union because of like their beliefs. They just fought just out of out of that reason. They, they just lived there for because they just happened to live there. There was no part of his character that seemed like against abolition, and he's actually a pretty non-biased guy because he has to be because that's what his job is. He reads the news, so he True. can't. Good point. Yeah, so he he says it. Exactly, exactly as the newspaper says, but he kind of brings it to life and kind of puts a cool flair on it uh, to kind of give the people a good story. Because, you know, back in the, those days, there's no TVs or anything like that. So these people pay a dime to go sit in whatever they're sitting in, like the cabin or a pavilion area or whatever, to listen to this guy bring the news from around the country uh, to life. The performance of Helena Zingle, she was really good in this movie. I mean... Able to speak three languages for one. Well, she doesn't really speak English at all, but she speaks Kiowa and then she speaks a little bit of German. Not just her speaking um, parts, but just her emotions overall in the movie. She's really believable of who she is. She's like a former a former German-born girl in Texas, then abducted by the Kiowa tribe. So it's just all, yeah, she just put on a great performance. Yeah, that was cool. She was able to emote while like transitioning multiple languages in certain scenes. So for a very young actress, I mean, that was super cool, super impressive and somebody to watch for sure. So I'm really hoping that something like this kind of propels her into not necessarily bigger projects, but just a lot more projects. And I'd love to see her in some more high profile stuff too, because she yeah, was great. For sure. Is there a lot of silence in this movie since the two of them can't really communicate? Not as much as you think. No. It's almost like they're talking to themselves. Yeah. But they're both talking at the same time. <laughs> so it's like he's communicating his thoughts and she's communicating hers. And then it's just they somehow form a scene around that in a weird way. So yeah, not a lot of silence. I wouldn't say so. So I didn't do the proper research. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but we just provided six really great movies in my opinion. So the audience, if you have not checked out these movies, they really surprised us in one way or another, or maybe more. So check them out. But here's what I know. These movies did not receive the praise they deserved. But no need to fear. The Arnies are here. I say that in my sleep every single night. But <laughs> we have our own award show, of course. So my friends, out of all six of these movies, what do you want to give an award to? Could be an actor, could be an actress, could be just a random part of the movie. What are you thinking? What do you want to do? Who wants to go first? Well, despite the fact that our topic today is surprised, my award is the Nick, you disappointed me award. No. And that is, no. are you telling me Tim Burton calls you up, says, Nick, I want <laughs> you for Superman. You're my number one choice. I won't do it unless you're Superman. You're going to be long haired. You're telling me your response is not, I'm growing my hair out right now. You're going to wear a wig. Come on, Nick. You disappointed me. I wanted that long hair to be real. 
Right. To be fair, I don't think he had the hair at that time. I just watched Vampire's Kiss recently from 1989, 10 years earlier, and he was already balding and wearing a wig. So I'll just say, Austin, I agree with you. I wanted that long hair to be real so goddamn bad, but I just don't know if he's capable of it. (laughs) I thought it was real. And then when they they show him messing with the wig, I was like, oh, come on, Nick. Come on, Nick. I didn't know he was balding. Does he have like hair plugs now or? He He has hair plugs. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's where he spent all his money on. Hair plugs and castles. (laughs) I'm going to give the best dog lover award. That goes to Tommy from Snatch. Because there's that one of my favorite lines whenever Mickey's like, you like dags? And he's like, dags? He's like, oh, you mean dogs? Like, yeah, I like dags. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. That was awesome. I was happy that dog made it out of the film. Me too. I was not, I had no idea what was going to happen. I know Boris was technically the bullet dodger in that movie, but by the end, that dog is the new bullet dodger. (laughs) My award, I'm sure everybody out there suspected it. How could we not talk about this guy more? We did him a disservice. My award is for the most wet, and that goes to John Bernthal in the ending scene of The Accountant. I don't know what was on this guy's face, if it was sweat, water, blood, or some combination of the other. He just looks like he dunked his head into <laughs> just like a dirty bathtub at the end. He's like brushing his hair back, rubbing his temples. He's like laughing, crying, laughing, crying. And it was great. I love John Bernthal. So charismatic. But that dude was wet. I'm not sure what was on that, him. <laughs> that must be a John Bernthal thing. Because if you watch him in, if you watch him in Walking Dead as Shane, he looks wet all the time in that, <laughs> that show, too. Like He's a very wet Punisher, too. Yeah, he is. He is. I, can we definitively say we've never done this before? We've, you know, is we're John giving Bernthal awards. the wettest actor? <laughs> exactly. We're giving awards for our individual movies here. But I think we just found potentially an even better. What can we call it? It's an even bigger Arnie Award. The Arnie's Unanimous Award. The Arnie's unanimously think that John Bernthal is the most moist actor working today. <laughs> like how there's different names. The wettest actor, the most moist actor. Keith, throw one in there. What do you think it should be called? The soggiest actor. Oh! <laughs> Golly, that reaction is fitting. He deserves it. All right, John Bernthal. Not only did you get my Arnie Award, but you just got the first, the inaugural Arnie's unanimous award. So enjoy that, man. You're wet, I guess. So keep being dry yourself off, John. Bring a towel to set. Yeah, just try it out. See how it goes. Just watch him do that. And he turns in like the worst performance of his career. (laughs) 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 All right. While John Bernthal, you're trying to find a towel. In the meantime, thank you everybody so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really would appreciate that to continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you don't want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. We'll be back next Tuesday to close out our lead-up to Spider-Man No Way Home. We covered Tobey Maguire and Sam Raimi's trilogy, Andrew Garfield, Mark Webb, and Emma Stone's later two movies, And now it is time to enter the MCU to discuss Tom Holland's entries before the new one comes out in a couple weeks. My friends, are we excited about this? I gotta say I'm nervous for this one. For as much as I loved Andrew Garfield, I'm worried Tom Holland's now not going to live up to Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Whoa. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to watching this way more than I am uh, Hawkeye. (laughs) That got me. That was good. You're not liking Hawkeye, Keith? (laughs) Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 
Rewatching Homecomings, I've only seen that one once, I think, and then I've never seen Far From Home. I've heard really good things from you guys and other people about that one. Jake Gyllenhaal, baby. Yeah. Old Jake's going to be there. So looking forward to watching that and looking forward to the new one. Yeah, I'm excited too because I'm actually not the biggest Homecoming fan. Uh, I know people love that movie when it comes to the Spider-Man movies and just the MCU in general, but I'm not the biggest fan. I'm not going to spoil why. I have tons of reasons. We'll get to that in the episode, but Far From Home. Actually, like quite a bit. So excited to rewatch that one. So, yeah, going to be fun to lead up to No Way Home. Austin, anything else you should mention? I know the holidays are coming up. We just finished up Thanksgiving. We have potentially, is there a bracket to look forward to? We do have a bracket, but I don't want to talk about that because in a few weeks, I will be watching all three of the Matrix films for the first time yes! to get prepared oh. for the Matrix 4. Oh, my God. I'm excited. I'm excited for that. Me too. I have I got- seen clips from one. I know the iconic scenes. I've never seen it all the way through, though. Same. What? Oh! You haven't either? I've only seen the first one. I haven't seen the other, oh, the okay. other two. Oh, okay. Yeah, so okay. I haven't seen, okay. I haven't seen them all the way through. Oh, man. I will say, as excited as I am for Spider-Man No Way Home, whenever that Matrix 4 trailer came out like three, four months ago, I think my most anticipated episode of this podcast to record is that Matrix episode at the end of the year. Uh, Just tease it for the audience. We're going to review, of course, quickly, all three of the originals and then talk about the new Matrix movie. I have no idea what you guys are going to think. And I can't wait. I'm so excited. Lastly, we want to hear from you guys. So please feel free to send us a message on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us the Arnie's media at gmail.com. Let us know about a movie that surprised you. Who's your favorite Spider-Man? Anything you say, we'll read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. That's right, everybody. So have a great rest of your week. We'll be back next week with some more Spider-Man content. In the meantime, remember, get your Maha Caravan. Dry yourself off, John. I like dags. (laughs) 